Hey there, this is Jose Ignacio Alfaro, producer of Are We Still Talking About This? In this episode, Jessica and Adam speak with writer, actor, father, and heavyweight champion of the world, Michael Bent. Michael is featured in the new Netflix original docuseries, Losers. Special thanks to MC Brand Communications and LA artist Kai. Want more episodes of Are We Still Talking About This? Rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Enjoy! I didn't like boxing because my father made me box. I saw that as a way to uh, gain his love, and I resented that. I went back to boxing after I quit because I had some talent. We should say by some talent, yeah. you're one of the most talented athletes in the world. That win the Golden Gloves five times, you have to be a, a generational talent. And when yeah. went back and watched some of the tape on you, it's breathtaking. So then when I heard that you, you lost your first professional fight to someone who was probably less talented than you, part of me wondered what you were going through psychologically. Uh, I was suicidal on top of self-loathing and just trying to figure out why it happened to me. Got this big contract from Emmanuel Stewart, turned pro, my first pro, finally getting knocked out by a guy named Jerry Jones. And uh, incidentally, me and Jerry Jones are great friends now. You know, he gave me a gift. About two or three years after I get knocked out by Jerry Jones, I was assigned to uh, be uh, Evander Holyfield's sparring partner. Evander Holy was like, you know, he was a heavyweight champion in the world. I was a big Bookhead. I love reading books, blah, blah, blah. So we had a break in training one day, and uh, Jerry Jones was also a sparring partner of Evander Holyfield, same camp. And I gave Jerry Jones ice because I didn't want to be confronted by the same guy who knocked me out in the first round. If he would come to the gym, I would give him, like, you know, a rough looking face. Jerry knew what that was about. It was about my inferiority. And so one day I met this uh, bookstore. And I see Jerry Jones out the corner of my, of my eye walking through the mall. And he looks into the bookstore. And we lock eyes. I'm like, holy shit. No. And he walks in. And I'm, you know, acting like I'm perusing books, blah, blah, blah. And he says to me, hey, hey young blood. No one ever called me young blood before. No, young blood. So I look up. I say, what's up, man? And he says to me, he says, check this out, bro. When you see me in the gym, you don't have to give me the attitude, brother. I got you before you got me in our fight. That's it. And when he said that to me, I'm getting chills right now. I'm like, wow. He gave, me, he gave me a gift. It's a generous thing. Oh, mm. man. Fast forward, maybe three years later, I'm fighting Tommy Morrison. And what Jerry said to me, that meant something. In the fight with Morrison, I simply got him before he got me. And I never got the chance to tell Tommy that. But if I could, mm. I would. Because he, he died of yeah, he's AIDS, gone now. That's right, yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't know uh, Tommy very well, but I wish now that I would have had the opportunity to uh, spend time with him as a human <laughs> being, just connect with him. Fighters fight from deprivation and victimhood, and Tommy fought from deprivation and victimhood, and I fought from the same thing. So I, mm -hmm. I get him, and he got me. So you grow up loving books and reading, as we both did. Yeah. That was... There the escape go. for me. That's it was right. always the library. It was always books. From the time I think it was it was eight or nine, Jessica, it's the same way. Except we didn't have to go 
to a gym, I'm assuming, all the time and get punched mm-hmm. by incredibly strong and talented. I mean, you, you've been hit by Evander Holyfield. Yeah. If that happened to me now, I would yeah. be dead. Yeah. He, that's like trying with fucking Joe kid, Lewis. Went, there was yeah. a kid I went to school with. His name is Tor Hammer. Yeah. He was, he had some success for a while. He the National Golden Gloves heavyweight. In New York? In New York, okay. yeah. He's I know from, the name. Yeah. Black kid, white kid? Yeah, black. I know, yeah, yes. I do you know, know Tor? I know of him. Yeah, yes. so Tor, I remember I went to, so I was in high school with him. He was very, he was brilliant. He was really book smart. Right an intellectual and then one day he flipped something happened there was a there was i don't know what it was but i think he was partying a lot and then he just became violent he started throwing chairs he started like just mm-hmm. t- morphing into another person mm-hmm. then tor graduates from high school and then suddenly tor has this whole big career with managers and with like a posse of women, of, you know, celebrity, of, mm-hmm. you know, just this like crazy lifestyle, private driver, yeah. where this was his whole life. Then I don't know what happened to him. It was weird. And I was thinking about that when we were, when Adam said we were yeah. doing this interview, it's like, it was like, it was very explosive. And then it was like, up and down and yeah. I work in comedy and so I know that mercurial like <laughs> lifestyle but I'm yeah. I wanted to circle back I'm curious like what is a like when someone is approaching a boxer to manage them like what kind of relationship is that that's a very good question you know Miles Davis once had a quote he said he can tell if a guy can play the trumpet by the way he stands right and I've been around the boxing game even like you know, when I was like 21, 22 years old, I was very intuitive. And I knew if, if, if someone was training me out of a place of love and respect or just like, you know, because like I'm Michael Benton, he can make some money off of me. You know, I was very sensitive towards that. So I was very, you know, maybe standoffish or, or arrogant because if he didn't prove, prove to me as an athlete that, you know, you speak my language, my very specific language, then I'm, I'm not dealing with you, man. Mm-mm. And there, there's a lot of exploitation that goes on. Absolutely. And I think that there's a racial dynamic to that too. Absolutely. Right? There, there has to be. Yeah. And I don't know if people talk about that enough. No, probably, we don't. Especially in that era that yeah. it was older, maybe Italian, mm-hmm. maybe Jewish, maybe fill in the blank men that would manage young boxers and or there's sometimes black managers yeah, too. Sure. That, and but it, the relationship would be very, very detrimental. Instead of like a for every Cusdomato, there's probably. 10 85 million. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know what I mean? I will say this. The guy who got me the fight with Tommy Morrison was a guy named Stan Hoffman. Stan Hoffman was uh, the nephew of someone named Maya Lansky. Yeah. Stan was really connected. I'm not saying he was connected to, but he was connected. Yeah. Business wise. Yeah. I, I, my <laughs> you know? uh, grandmother's maiden name was Siegel. So we, we know them. <laughs> there we are. Yeah. You know, and I will say this. Without Stan Hoffman's backing or his contacts, I'm not fighting Tommy Morrison. I retire Michael Ben ten fights and one loss, ten fights or two loss. I don't know, but like you know, I don't fight Tommy Morrison without Stan Hoffman's influence. I know that that's part of the game. You know, I can appreciate Stan, but some of the values that like are held in in, in boxing, I don't like, and I can find. Value in something I don't like, but uh, Stan was was a uh, Stan was good to me. Jewish cat, I'm black, you know. As a matter of fact, uh, just to 
you know, on that point, most of the people post my uh, boxing career who mentored me looked like you, didn't look like me. Michael Mann, Ron Shelton, Fred Berner, uh, right. Bert Sugar, Bud Schulberg, these are all white cats. And these people say, you know what? This kid, he got something, give him a shot. You know, without, without me um, writing for Bert Sugar's fight game and writing this article about getting knocked out in the first round or getting knocked out and in Golden Gloves, we're not having this conversation right now because there's nothing to talk about. I was going to ask you, how much yeah. writing did you do before that piece? Because that's an exceptional piece. Thank you. I really appreciate that. There's a story behind this. It's a long story, but I'll make it short. Uh, I was uh, working with Stan Hoffman after I retired from boxing, after I got knocked out by Herbie Hyde. You know, Stan said, Mike, you know, you have a great eye for boxing. You know, you know the nuances of what to look for. Why don't you become a trainer? So I became a trainer of this kid named uh, Don Diego Puder, who was uh, Dutch. So I would, you know, train him and then go, go to uh, uh, the Netherlands and train him and work his corner as a fighter. And one day I'm in Holland and uh, a reporter from the, uh, the British newspaper, some British newspaper who covered me as a pro in London, wants to interview me. So I walk into the interview and he says, Michael, you're not happy, are you? I'm like, no, hell no, hell no. I don't want to be here. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do what you do. What's that? Write. He said, well, start writing. And I went home, flew back to uh, PA where I was living at the time, wrote a piece about Mark Breland, the uh, 1984 Olympic gold medalist who signed with Emmanuel Stewart and was um, trying to launch his comeback after he had lost his championship in a professional fight. I spoke to Mark and Emmanuel Stewart and uh, just got, just, Mark, tell me the truth, why are you fighting? What are you trying to compensate for? And we just clicked and we just spoke to each other. I called Michael Katz. Uh, who was a New York Daily News uh, boxing uh, journalist and a big supporter of mine. And he said, I said, uh, Michael, I wrote this um, thing about Mark Breland. Could you run it for me? He said, send it to me. Like, you know, and if it's good out, I'll run it. He ran it. Wow. Two months later, I'm at this uh, HBO boxing conference, press conference, uh, just hanging out. And I meet Bert Sugar. And he says, Michael, how you doing? I'm like, good, Bert. He says, uh, I have a new magazine I want you to write for. Really? Yeah, really, yes. And uh, so I did some fluff pieces on several boxes. Uh, Michael Grand did a piece on Roy Jones. And then uh, Bert called me one day and says, I have something for you, Michael, that only you can write. I'm like, what's that, Bert? Take the reader down the road of getting knocked out and knocking somebody out. Oh, fuck. <laughs> okay. I avoided writing that article for maybe four or five weeks. Burke calls me up and says, Michael, I want you to meet me at the New York City Golden Gloves uh, semifinals at the uh, Felt Farm. Go down there. You know, I see Burt, and there's this small guy standing next to Burt Sugar. And this guy turns around, and he says to me, Michael, write the fucking piece. This guy was Bud Schulberg. You know Bud Schulberg? Uh, yeah. yeah. Bud Schulberg uh, is the Academy Award winning writer of uh, On the Waterfront. Oh, Jesus. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Burt was a big boxing fan. He was one of the contributors on uh, Burt Sugar's fight game. This guy is telling me, I believe in you, dude. Stop fucking around. Write the piece. I went back home, locked myself in my room, banged out a piece in two days. 
and that got me recognized by Ron Shelton, who was a big uh, boxing fan, and and uh, he said, "Man, look, if, if this kid can write, if this kid can act the way he writes, let's uh, find something we're gonna do out, you know, out in Hollywood." And I uh, flew out to L.A. I got an audition for uh, Michael Mann's Ali, and that nice. that changed my life completely. I can't believe you wrote that in two days. Yeah, to me, that's the sign of someone who's been writing in their head their entire lives. I have been. Yeah, yeah. I have been. I have been. Uh, you know, and 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 uh, as a side uh, sidebar, in order to really get to that place of deprivation and humiliation, I had to watch my last fight with Herbie Hyde. It was maybe a year and a half after that fight, and I hadn't watched the fight since. But to get to that place in here and here, I had to take that cassette tape off the damn shelf in my closet, put it in the VCR and watch it. And when I watched it, you know what happened to me? I felt so fucking liberated, man. I felt liberation. Like, fuck. Wow. I got up. I was out. The referee stopped the fight at the right time, but I got up. And most people who get knocked down, I got knocked down um, and I landed face first. If you know anything about boxing, most people who get knocked down face first, they don't get back up. But I got back up. I mean, I was out of it, but I got back up. And I was, I felt a sense of liberation. I'm like, whoa, man. Okay, right. So next chapter. My next chapter was writing. I remember I went back to school, this uh, small community college in Pennsylvania, near Eastern uh, PA. And I would sneak. <laughs> I didn't have a computer. So I would sneak into the uh, computer room at night and just bang out pieces, just bang out, like, as an exercise. You know, they weren't published, but like, you know, maybe they would be one day, I'd just bang them out. And I would always hear this mantra, write like Spike Lee tells the truth. Write like, write like Spike Lee tells the truth. And like, I, I wasn't a Spike Lee fan, but he, he told the truth in his movies. So, yeah, well. <laughs> weird. So we go back to you being a kid for a moment. Yes. So you're young. What were some of your favorite stuff to read? Uh, the first book that I finished uh, cover to cover was uh, the autobiography of the autobiography of Nat Turner. Awesome. I was uh, maybe 11. Mm-hmm. And then the second book uh, I recall uh, finishing was um, Stephen King's uh, Cujo and Salem's Lot. I was a big Stephen King oh, said. So was I. Yeah. Especially early on. And and then uh, one of my other books that I remember reading, uh, just being completely consumed uh, by it was, uh, oh man, was uh, The Boys from Brazil. At uh, 11. Ira Levin. Yeah, it's a great Ira- book. <laughs> yes. I never saw you give anyone a... Yes. I usually don't touch people because <laughs> yeah. I'm you know, yeah. crazy. No, no, you got to give that book. Yeah. Ira Levin, <laughs> yes. Fascinating. Like, wow. I mean, we can write about this kind of stuff. And I was also a big baseball fan. You know, when, um, how old are you? I am, that's a good question. 37, I believe. 81. That's all? You're a baby, dude. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I just look like shit. So no, no, you don't look fantastic, <laughs> Remember when the New York Yankees, well, you don't remember, but like, you know, the Yankees were playing the KC Royals in the 1976 uh, playoffs. And... A baseball player named a first baseman named Chris Chambliss hit a home run in the in the uh, ninth inning that uh, won the uh, Yankees uh, the championship or the birth of the uh, World Series, and he became my hero. 
I mean, Muhammad Ali was my first hero, but Chris Chambliss, man, mm. I just like I loved everything about this guy. He was he was modest. On my block, we had this collection of guys who loved baseball as well, and we uh, coined ourselves as the uh, Two on Ninth Street Yankees. And I was Chris Chambliss. My my uh, friend Kelly Brown, he was Greg Nettles. My other friend Mark was a uh, uh, Willie Randolph. So we had like a you know, whole team, and I just like you know loved baseball. And one of the things that my father did when he, I started bossing at 10 or nine and a half, 10. And, uh, you know, I came home and said, dad, after about six months, look, I don't want to box anymore. Sorry. And he went ballistic, you know, grabbed the rabbit there, antenna off the TV, beat my ass. Something else he did. I had a massive collection of baseball cards. The morning after he, uh, he gave me a beating, I looked out the uh, attic window outside and I saw these boxes of baseball cards like streaming down the side because like, it was raining, thunderstorm, and all the, car- all the cars were in the street and like being, you know, flushed down the uh, sidewalk by the rain. I'm like, fuck, man. I started crying. Yes. Like, why, man? Why? So then from 10 on was a lot of amateur fights i'm guessing actually no uh i stopped at 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 10 you know i didn't go back uh, to boxing uh i mean the reason why i stopped was because uh i didn't like being told what to do and i knew the day that i was going to tell my father i didn't want to box anymore i knew how it was going to work like i knew how it was going to work out i knew like you know what was in store for me and uh and i think that was the day that i became a man because um, you know, this guy is is he's he's domineering and he do what the fuck he says. I opposed him and I became a man that every day. So let's fast forward to when I'm 15 years old. I'm cutting school. I shouldn't say this, but I was. I was a chronic truant. I would go into my school library and I went to one of the best schools in the city at that point at that time, Aviation High School. Uh, I would go into the school library, steal books. Me too. Aviation? I would steal um, books. Books. Yes. Yeah. And I still, I remember I was just at my mother's apartment in New York and I said, there's books from high school that still has a stamp from high school. And she's like, can't believe you've never returned those books. Yeah. You own some, you own some books, sister. Yeah. You, own a, you own a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> but that's you, not me. I don't own anything. <laughs> no, no, no. Yes, I do. I would, you know. <laughs> Steal these books and ride a train, the seven yeah. train or the E train. Why don't we like, just check oh, them out? Why do we have to steal them? Um, that's a good point, you know. Books of all things. Yeah. Right? Why, why didn't we just check them out? <laughs> to me, like books are intimate things that sometimes I just want it. Like I right, want it. Right. I want to be able to know that anytime I want, I can open this book to this yeah. part and read and, something. Yeah. And like the one time that I like really got in trouble is when I slept in Barnes and Noble with um, a girlfriend of mine from my best friend. Overnight? Yeah. That's the wow. one time. That's like one of the one big ones, bad ones. Well, yeah, it was bad because we were not, I mean, we slept in Barnes and Noble. But you're reading it's, That's a good thing I would think. <laughs> if I'm your dad, I'm not pissed off at you. Now, if well, slept, I didn't say what section, but go on. Oh, well, that's, that's different without yeah. doing that well. Then I will be pissed off at you. No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> so I would uh, ride the train and like, you know, go to her. 
of course, you know, of uh, Flushing Meadow Park. Right. Under the uh, big uh, Unisphere. Mm-hmm. And I would sit there in the winter or like, you know, or summertime. Because it was like, I just found that that giant structure so, like, fascinating, man. I'm like, where's Jamaica? Where's Russia? I'm like, you know, and I would read these books. And um, then one day I cut school and went home. And my brother had a paper out, Daily News. And I grabbed the paper, went upstairs to go, like, you know, masturbate or just like, you know, because I'm 15 years old. Right. And guys are 15 years old, guess what? We're either reading or masturbating. It's pretty constant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not to be rude or cruel, but like, yeah. No, yeah. that's where it is, yeah. right? So I put the book down, grabbed the, grabbed the newspaper. Oh, okay. Headline, USA boxing team uh, perishes in plane flight on approach to a Poland airport. Okay, so what? Some boxes died. Okay, so what, man? Uh, so I flipped through the uh, pages. You know, they had these small pictures of the people who died in the uh, the plane crash boxing team. And I see one picture of a, of a guy named George Pimentel. And George was my first mentor at the boxing gym I went to. And when I left the gym, I never said goodbye to him. And he was a guy who like who really believed in me. He would take me running. He would make me run with him. Like you know, but like you know, he he mentored me with compassion, not domination. And that was the difference. My father dominated me, or he tried to, you know. And uh, uh, George, he like you know taught me compassion while he like you know spanked me. He died, and I I made the decision right there. You know what? I'm gonna box for George, not for my father. Fuck my father. I'm gonna box for George. He always said to me that that great boxers win four golden gloves, and I won four. Whether that was subconscious or you know that was a, a direct homage to George, I don't know. But like you know, I don't I don't win four golden gloves without like you know that subconscious thing. Like you know, hey man, four, four, four. And I won I went on to win five national championships, as you mentioned, and uh, uh, three time All American. Like wow. You know, so in retrospect, I appreciate the journey. Uh, I'm a high school dropout, as I said. Maybe I didn't say, but you know. Yeah, I don't think you. Yeah, I, I am. And uh, um, boxing, amateur boxing, provided me with a priceless education. I, if I'm going on, if I went to Harvard, I'm not getting the same education as I did as an amateur boxer traveling the world. Well, what are some things that you learned? The number one lesson, well, well, you know, as a and the key thing that uh, I've learned is that people, no matter where we are in the world, we want to be seen and heard in the right spirit. You know, we want to be respected. We want to be listened to. Not, you know, not spoken to, but listened to. No matter if I'm in China, if I'm in Moscow, it's the same thing. Just like listen to me, you know, and, and like, you know, and be available. You know, that's that's like a, something that my father never was available because I get it. You know, his um, his upbringing was horrible. I get it. You know, but like, you know, I mean, I would never want to I have a 14 year old son. I would never subject my son to what my father subjected me to. Never. If that's how I had to behave to uh, teach my son a lesson. I'm not in the picture anymore, man. I'm not. I'm, I'm taking myself out. Because he doesn't deserve that, and like uh, being abusive to him is is directly abusing. Uh, I'm abusing myself. What's the point? You know what I mean? No, not doing that. And like you know, I don't have a I don't have a relationship with my father to this day, and I'm completely okay with that. Okay, great. Like you know, I get it. 
once again, I may find value in my father, but I don't like him. You know, and just because I find value in someone doesn't mean I have to like him. You know, you could like, you know, I'm glad to be in my life, man. You're going to have to be in my son's life. He knows what I've said about my experiences with my father, you know, and uh, he empathizes with that. My, you know, my 14-year-old son, you know, so that's, that's it. I'm not concerned with my father. I'm not concerned with him. I, I can't afford to be concerned with him, you know. What's it like to be one of the best people at the world at something but not really want to do it? Lonely. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've had my heart broken several times, uh, and I've bro- broken hearts several times, you know, and the times that I've had my heart broken, I caused it. That's a double whammy and nothing compares to, uh, the isolation or solitude of, of getting knocked out. Nothing compares to that. I mean, physiologically, I would assume it's not metaphorically, right. but it's, you're you're getting put in a place that no That's one right. else is. So That's I just right. had to wonder how yeah. much of it is you kind of escaping. I've always been suicidal, and like you know, psychology is one of the things that's always fascinated me. I guess since I was a youngster, and more so now that I'm an actor, because you have to delve into stuff. That guy delved into Marlon Brando. He's like God. I found out later on, much later in life. I've always like had these thoughts of like fucking kill myself. The first time was when uh, my brother and I got into a fight. He was 14 years old. I'm eight years old. The six year difference is a, that's a big difference, right? And uh, like he slapped me around, you know, said something horrible to me, and, so, and then like you know, and I went upstairs and and I hid myself in the closet. Every time you know I was faced with a conflict, I'd always hide in the closet. I remember that very vividly, but I always like hide myself in the closet. And this time, eight years old, how can I hang myself? Because you have like, you know, the yeah. the things up there, like with those, the bars, I'm like, how can I fucking hang myself? You know, I thought about it, it was very vivid. I'm like, shit, man. And it wasn't until fairly recently, I asked my mom, you study psychology, so, so maybe you can like, you know, Give me a uh, definitive answer on this. She and I have these heavy talks. You know, sometimes they're good talks, and sometimes they're like, you know, horrible talks because, like, you know, you know, I'm, I want the truth, man. Where did I come from? How'd you end up with this man? You know, how'd you end up with this damaged man? Right? And she tells me all that stuff, like, and I thank her for it. I appreciate her for it. What one time, like maybe about a year or two ago, she said, uh, you know, Mike, at some point um, when I was pregnant with you, I tried to kill myself by throwing myself down a flight of stairs. Fuck, man. Thank you. Now, I've been fucked up all these years thinking, like, you know, there's something wrong, but, but now, like, you know, I mean, you don't forget about that in your DNA. You know, once again, like, you know, I've, I've, I've never studied psychology, but, like, you know, the little bit I know about anything is that human beings don't forget anything, even, like, you know, pre-birth, when we're in the being developed, we hear trauma, we experience trauma. And when she said that to me, she's, I was like, fuck, now I get it. Now I know why I've always been fucking suicidal. Thank you, man. Thank you. Makes sense. Woman is in experiencing like, you know, horrible abuse. She can't take it no more. She 
throws herself down a fucking flight of stairs. Okay, yeah, I get it. Let me know something. Or kill me. And yet you're surviving. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, like, you know, that, uh, that uh, I mean, I, once again, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know why or how I survive. I don't know why or, or how I survive, but like you know, I think, I think, um, not to get all sentimental or, or like cheesy, but like you know, I think the reason why I survive is because like somewhere there's like a little a little kid who's going through what I, like you know what what yeah. we've been through, mm-hmm. and it's our job to say you know what, hey, come here, it's gonna be alright, man. It's gonna be alright. Let's hold hands and do like you know, and get thought together. That's what it is. I was going to ask you something about that um, because to me, your story, which again, this mostly comes from the the thirty minute piece I saw on yeah. you, but was a, the story of someone who was persevering because they were forced to be something they didn't want to be, which I can imagine is devastating for someone. And it made me think about a lot of kids who grow up knowing who they are identity wise whether it's a sexuality thing or whether it's something else, yet they're forced to be another person. So I was going to ask you what you would say to those kids about finally discovering who they are and being able to act as themselves. I think to find true happiness, you got to take some risks. And risks involve confronting those who may have more power than you, so they think. Uh, because those who have more power than you uh, want to dominate you, and if if a little boy or girl happens to like you know if his little boy happens to like boys or a little girl happens to like girls, mom and dad has nothing to do with that. I mean, that's not a choice that those kids made. Who would make that kind of choice? It's not a choice. There's a, there's a certain point in my life where I confronted my father. You know, but I'm not. I'm not um, advocating that. I'm advocating you sitting your parents down, and you speak to them and make sure that they they listen to you. And if they don't, you have to take more drastic measures. What those drastic measures are, I don't know. Uh, you know, I haven't figured it out myself. I'm lucky to be here. I do recommend uh, to those kids uh, start writing about your experiences. Start unveiling or revealing yourself to yourself by writing. You'll gain so much more insight like you than talking to mom and dad because nine times out of 10, if you're going to talk to mom and dad about like, you know, what you're feeling and like, you know, what you're liking and mom and dad uh, are, are in opposition to it, you're talking to a brick wall. Start writing about the way you feel and start seeking out mentors or like, you know, start seeking out people who get you. I've been lucky. I've been lucky, like you know. I mean, I've, I've, I don't know how I'm how I'm still here, but I am. I wish I had more of a uh, definitive answer for that question, man. I, I don't. I mean, you could have died every day. You yeah. went and did your job, exactly. like it. And I think you almost did, right? Yeah. Like you, against Herbie Hyde, sure. Can you talk a little bit about absolutely? That? Herbie and I uh, fought in 1995. My last fight uh, at this soccer stadium in. Uh, in Millwall, England. Man, uh, I got to give a bit of backstory. I got, I got like damaged in the sparring session three weeks before the fight, you know. And I uh, went to this uh, doctor who I'd known since my amateur career as an amateur. He said, Michael, 
you, you're concussed, I suggest you go to England, go through the motions, but don't fight. Call the fight off. Great. Okay, great. But that, like, I'm a soldier. You know, I get to England. I start training. I start sparring again, you know, with bigger guys, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's okay, great. So I feel good. I'm not canceling the fight. I, you know, that's not what the Warriors do. Warriors don't cancel fights, man. And I'll say this. If I fight Herbie Hyde 10 times, he beats me nine and a half point nine times. He like, you know, he's a guy who had my number. And in boxing matches, if you know anything about boxing, there are certain people that you fight that's gonna have your number, no matter who you are. I could be, I could be, I could have like a Gatling gun. A Gatling gun. And Herbie Hyde beats me with a Gatling gun. Yeah, that's how it goes. I fight Herbie Hyde, he knocks me out in seven rounds. And uh, I lapsed into a uh, 94-hour coma, 96-hour coma, you know, after the fight, uh, you know, had swelling on the brain. Uh, They were supposed to do this procedure. The swelling subsided. And I woke up, well, what the fuck happened? Blah, blah, blah. Whoa. Okay. So I can't box anymore. Okay. I was relieved. And I was also, like, in pain because now what? Now what? It's like, you know, this, the boxing defined me. That's what I thought. You know, because when you get knocked out, like, let me go back to my uh, first fight. I got knocked out in the first round, right? The amount of, of, uh, of um, what's what I'm looking for, man? The amount of, uh, not hate, but loathing that I felt from other people was was. I would go to my aunt's uh, workplace in Manhattan. And every time I would go there, pre-knockout, this guy would like, hey, Mike, how you doing, champ? Blah, blah, blah. Give me a big hug, man. You know, good luck on your next fight. When I got knocked out by Jerry Jones, I went up there once. And when I went up there and I asked my aunt, this guy spoke to me with such disdain because I got knocked out. Why are you fucking mad, man? This guy like spoke to me and looked at me like I had smacked his mother in the, in the face, literally. I'm like, wow. All boxers are hypersensitive. Mom Ali, hypersensitive. Sonny Liston, hypersensitive. Mike Tyson, hypersensitive. But they, they were this mask of like, you know, being in, like, you know, invulnerable. But it's bullshit. You know, you don't fight unless you're hyper, hypersensitive. You know, it's a, it's a cash 22, but that's, that's the way it is. I understand where this guy was coming from. His, um, his self identity was like wrapped up in my, in my success to a certain degree. I don't know whether he bet money on me. I don't, I don't know. But, you know, I mean, or some guys like, you know, just, just want you to fail just so, so they can say, motherfucker, I told you, you know, you weren't shit. You know, so people are damaged. My journey as an actor, let me know how fucked up we are. We're, you know, we're all damaged, you know, but you and I, people around this table, we're self-reflectives. We see our own shit. We identify it, right? You do. I know you do. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, if not, we're not having this conversation. Right. That's rare in this society because people aren't self-reflective. It's painful. And it takes work. It's exhausting. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. What's the alternative, though? To lie? I'm a great liar. 
there's a great line in, in Scarface, like, you know, I'm not trying to be flippant, but like, you know, I fucking lie even when I tell the truth. That's what it is. You have to. 